Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I'm the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode of Cinemillennials, I talk with another K-Cut podcast host, James Bunn, about Federico Fellini's masterwork on the process of filmmaking, Eight and a Half. Federico Fellini's legacy is that of his films, grounded fantasy, a cavalcade of nostalgia, fever dreams, lust, and desire. From Tim Burton to David Lynch, Fellini is revered as one of the masters of surrealist cinema. Considered as one of the greatest films and filmmakers of all time, from both a technical perspective, boasting praise amongst other cinematic legends like Martin Scorsese, and from a critical perspective, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half is a tour into the soul of an artist, someone that both believes in their own hype and yet doesn't, one that tries to express the truths of life and the condition of humanity, but perpetuates lies. Eight and a Half follows the story of Guido Anselmi, a famous Italian director that is stuck between reminiscing on his past and developing the next great project. Caught between his writer's block, nagging producers, his affair with his wife, and the pressure of being an artist, Guido's life both professionally and personally is crumbling. Will his next project be his magnum opus, or will it fade away in the bustle of this circus we call life? So sit back, relax, and don't climb out of your car in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Hey James, welcome to the show. What was the first film you saw in theaters, and what are your favorite films at the moment? You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't actually remember what my first film was in theaters. I don't know why, but there's just a lot of things from childhood that I don't remember. I know you don't remember the film specifically that started all for you, but what are the films from your childhood do you remember the most? I didn't really get serious into movies until high school, but I will say one film that had an impact on me when I was a child was the independent movie Cube. It's a Canadian independent film, and it's about this group of strangers. They wake up in this cube structure that's filled with rooms, and they have no idea how they got there, and they kind of have to navigate their way out, but some rooms are safe and some rooms are booby-trapped. So it's kind of like this, like, dystopian sci-fi type thing with like a little bit of noir mixed in and it's kind of like this question of like who's behind things and they don't know and kind of learn things along the way more about the structure that they're in and by the end you still don't get any questions answered but it leaves you really intrigued and I think I saw this when I was like eight or nine and for some reason that just resonated with me even though I don't think that really should for someone of single digit age (laughs) and then kind of in high school, I got really into film. I think it was like 2007 was a specific year because I was like actually getting into a lot of critically acclaimed stuff. Like at the time, like Donnie Darko and like Pulp Fiction and Tarantino films. Darren Aronofsky, I was a big fan of because I had watched Requiem for a Dream. But when I bought it, it came with his first film, Pie. And that just completely warped my brain and was like, OK, I need to get more into movies because this is awesome. I'd say some of my favorites right now. It's really hard to say. I think there's just so many good films coming out it's hard to pick select ones I'd say soul was one of my favorites which i'm not really into animated films but that was a good one wolf walkers which was another animated film which is amazing 
I love that one so much. I was a big fan of Tenet. I wish I would have seen it in theaters, but I'm always a big Christopher Nolan fan. I'm a big fan of Steven Soderbergh. His films are always great. Actually, his most recent film, No Sudden Move, was actually really good. So I definitely recommend that one. But other than that, I'm really big into like low-budget film or 70s film. Thanks for having me on the show. This definitely was an interesting concept because I definitely need to get into more classic film. And the idea of millennials watching classic films kind of intrigued me. Of course. Thank you for coming on the show. You guys do great work on the K-Cut and the Films Total. Eight and a Half is something that is constantly hyped within the classic movie world. So it was really interesting to see that you picked Eight and a Half. What drew you to classic films, watching stuff from 1970s and even before that? I'm really fascinated with the new Hollywood movement and also like a lot of older international films because a lot of the great filmmakers of today are influenced by those films. I always tell people I watch older movies to understand new movies because as time goes on, everything is just kind of a blend of influences. Like you take a movie like Jordan Peele's Get Out. There's like a dozen different movies that that stems from that it probably wouldn't exist had those movies not existed. Or like, you know, how Tarantino pretty much just blends every single influence he has into his movies. Like Kill Bill is just layered with all sorts of influence from Italian horror to spaghetti western to martial arts flick. I'm just fascinated with stuff like that. So I kind of go back in time and then I started going a little bit further when I found out about French New Wave because French New Wave really kind of kicked off the more I don't want to say artistic but I'd say it kind of kicked off like art artistic in a way that hadn't been done before because it was so stripped experimental that is exactly what I'm going for in cinema millennials is hey look at the films that are coming out now you know look at the art films that are coming out now look at the main popcorn flicks that are coming out now despite railing against them a lot of these new Hollywood directors, whether it be Scorsese, Lucas, Coppola, all those guys were influenced by these types of films and are putting them directly into the filmmaking world that we have today. Now, I want you to go into a little bit of what new Hollywood is for people who don't know what that is. It starts in the late 60s. And the best way to describe it, the year 1969 is kind of where it kicked off. There are a couple of films probably like 65 to 67 that came out but the death of Sharon Tate signaled what was going to be happening in the new Hollywood movement because when new Hollywood came around it was this group of directors who were influenced by the past 60 70 years of film so they were taking a lot of these influences and then putting them to American stories and it really kind of took a dark turn compared to the previous classic era especially with the way they were made because you know it wasn't the sets and the costumes and all that it was like people were shooting films in the streets as locations and people's apartments and houses and this was like one of the greatest eras for neo-noir and all these gritty stories you know dealing with the existential dread and you know all sorts of crime stuff and and it's not that you're limited to that because you have people like woody allen who was doing you know some of the best comedies that we've seen and still have yet to be topped but you know you have things like Scorsese when he was doing his like Mean Streets that's a very gritty crime film but then you also have Terrence Malick who is doing things like 
Badlands, which was more of this kind of like ethereal spiritual film. But then you have De Palma, who after his first few films were just kind of general films, he was taking on Hitchcockian influence, is really to this day the only director who actually went full Hitchcock and actually succeeded in it. Francis Ford Coppola had a renaissance in the 70s because he released four films that would be regarded as perfect. It just paved the way for so many others because it really was an era where you could push the limits. And then once the 80s rolled around, that's when they decided to play it safe and be kind of more about the money. It's definitely a change from the classical era where you have sets build up, you have lavish costumes, you have things like that, where it's like, all right, here's what the fantastical Hollywood film developed from. This is what we started as, and now we're going further and further into new things because we're able to involve the real world now rather than this fantastical escape from reality. Not that every classical movie is an escape from reality. By far, it's not. There's a lot of great themes and there's a lot of hard-hitting ideas. A lot of the things that you were able to do then are not able to be really fully realized until you get into the new Hollywood movement. What were the pre-70s movies that you've watched and have become like something that you've really regarded as like some of the best movies that you've seen? I really haven't gone too far back into the 60s, but I do think two films that definitely resonated me were The 400 Blows and Breathless, you know, the films that kicked off the French New Wave. And I kind of look at that as interesting because those two movies were kind of asking questions that no other films were asking. And I think it has to do more so film before that wasn't concerned about the human condition more. So it wasn't concerned with feelings, so to say, because the goal was just to tell stories, especially in America. I mean, you know, Quentin Tarantino said that one of the things that's good about America film was they can tell a good story. And I do think that's, that's true, but I will say there was a point where everything seemed kind of, I don't want to say plastic, but you know, it was about being more theatrical because the people at the time in film came from the stage primarily and stage translated to film very well. But when it was time to break away from that, it took a different kind of perspective, which I also praise the French new wave movement because before making those films, those guys like the Kaiju cinema crew, they were film critics who decided to make movies. So it was almost like they were qualified to make something different or break new ground because they saw something, okay, we're going to take this approach because they haven't done this yet, despite film being, what, 60 years old at that point? It's interesting that you say that the way that you felt with classical filmmaking and how it's not really concerned with emotions and feelings. It's more telling the story. I, I, I don't know if I can agree with that. I th there's a lot of heart while we might not understand, and I'm not saying you specifically, I think it's a, a generational type of thing within our generation where we have a lot of ideas about our feelings and mental health. And we think about thinking a lot within our generation. And I think there's a lot of ideas that are put into classic films that are really, really looking at the depths of our souls. Um, why are we human? Why are we here? Films we've covered it on the show in the past exhibit the exact evidence against that argument. 2001 A Space Odyssey, M, The Man Who Laughs, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Immigrant, Sullivan's Travels, All About Eve, Lost Horizon, Citizen Kane, Some Like It Hot, Paths of Glory, The Seventh Seal, Casablanca, and of course, the great dictator, all exhibit that introspection that all of these films like really concern themselves with looking at our humanity and question why 
we are the way we are and how can we resist against evil within ourselves and without how can we help those that are marginalized or victimized and how can we help ourselves to become better both individually and as a whole there's a lot of themes all throughout classic films that while the big ones might not have them all or the small ones have a little bit more of them there are a lot of heavy heavy things that go into classic filmmaking just because the directors and the people that created did not have as much of a say in what goes into the movie because the studios were king and queens of the whole thing. But I think to say that is kind of disingenuous or not disingenuous, but it's kind of not fair to those directors and to those people in the past in order to, you know, I know, I understand, you know, the, the people of the newer generations, new Hollywood, were able to really get into really, really, really hard-hitting stuff. But at the same time, there are a lot of great directors that were able to subliminally and to actually some parts, you know, very early on in filmmaking in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, where you're able to really, really push the boundaries of a lot of social and societal issues. So I think that that was really interesting that you said that because there are like a lot of different schools of thought within people and how they approach classic filmmaking. So I really appreciate that whole kind of sweeping thing that you just went through with New Hollywood because I'm learning some of that stuff too. Is I made this show so I can learn more and more about, especially with French New Wave, Italian films, and foreign films. You went into French films. Italian films are always hyped up in film circles when you're first getting into foreign films. But I don't know, with this being my first classic Italian film, I'm not sure like how I felt. How did you feel about foreign films and Italian films going into this? I actually didn't really have that much experience with Italian films because I think the only one I can think of off the top of my head is Suspiria that I've seen recently, but that was in the 70s. So it's like, I still have yet to dive into it, which was the reason I picked eight and a half because, you know, I've always heard Fellini is one of the greats. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a spin. And to quick touch on what you said earlier, you actually make a good point. When I said I'm not concerned with feelings, I do have to mention that I will acknowledge that there is more surface level acknowledgement when it comes to emotion. I think we didn't do the sort of deep dive into the things that people usually would refuse to talk about in the later areas. But I will say eight and a half definitely touches on a lot of interesting stuff. A lot of people regardfully, especially who you talked about before, Martin Scorsese, you know, Martin Scorsese is the biggest voice for Felliniism, the Fellini is king type of thing. I personally... I was not crazy over this film with the way it's surrealist and the way that it's just trying to put across, or maybe it was just maybe too, I don't want to say that I'm an artist or whatever, you know, on the level of our main character Guido, but as somebody that is creative, it felt like I was like, all right, well, I know a little bit about this too much already. And it's reminding me too much of my own life. So maybe that's why I wasn't crazy over it. But Italian films have this kind of thing where it's very introspective and it almost in a way, surrealist expressionist in a way was that your experience with the film when i was looking at this film guido was a millennial before millennials <laughs> interesting i didn't think about this because when you look at it you have to think about it one well i mean i love surrealism anyway so that i i really enjoyed it for that aspect but if it's striking a chord with you in the sense that you said then it's doing its job because you got to think about it. We are the most self-deprecating generation in history. And the nature of this film aligns with that because it's, it's, it's like he's parodying his own self as an artist. But also this film is almost like a meme in film format 
Really? I didn't think about that. Go on. How did you figure that out? I think it's the surreal angle because if you notice a lot of memes from our generation, they're very surreal. Like they even go as far as being like Lynchian surreal. So when I see something like this, but I think it's just being a millennial before millennials, I think it's that constant sense of existential dread, but also imposter syndrome because he's trying to get this film made, but he's questioning his own genius. Like, am I really good or am I really a fraud? Because he's basically making something that is about nothing. But at the same time, it is about something because he's trying to figure out where he's at in life. Because, you know, there's bits of his past that get shown. And I think that millennials are, for better or for worse, sometimes an overly nostalgic generation where they constantly hold on to memories like he does, regardless of what may be happening. But also... I think the sense of his relationships with people, I mean, dude's got a wife and a girlfriend in the movie. That's not uncommon, but at the same time, it's like she kind of knows, but at the same time doesn't care, but still willing to take him back. I'm like, this stuff happens in real life. It's always happened, but just his approach and kind of carefree attitude, like he almost can't decide himself if he's the bad guy or not. Now that you say, man, like and thinking about the movie, I'm like, yeah, he's right. Because it is super deprecating and it's like, there's a comic online, I can't remember who did it or what thing where like, you're like, all right, it's time to go to sleep. And then your brain reminds you of you of a cringy moment in your life. And it's just like, why is that something that hasn't been, you know, explored more? And it has been here. And it's like, you're constantly going back to Guido's case, who's he's trying to make a film about his life. And he's trying to like, every creative person puts something of themselves into their art. This is their perceived world, or this is the world that they perceive the world as to be. He really is this type of proto-millennial where he does look at himself constantly under this lens. And you're talking about imposter syndrome. You're talking about, am I really the person that I think I am? Or am I really the person that others think I am? And with that perspective, it's really fascinating. Now that you've said that, I'm going to go back and watch this movie with that lens. And I think that's just something that's going to be really, really eye-opening for me and for other people that listen to the show now and to see how the things that we experience today are things that other people experienced in the past. And that's how we relate to former generations while at the same time learning from those generations so we don't hurt ourselves for the future. I didn't really know too much about eight and a half before watching the film. I knew that Scorsese talked about it a lot. I knew that everybody else talked about it a lot. What were the things that you knew about eight and a half before watching the film? The only things I knew about it were it was considered great. Fellini is one of the best, but also I kind of wanted to check it out because I haven't seen this film yet either, but Woody Allen's Stardust Memories kind of parodies the movie. I actually looked it up after watching it that there's a number of films that actually take from this as well. I saw eight and a half. I was like, that's on my list. I need to watch this. What did you think of the film overall besides your initial thoughts about millennials and how we could relate to the film? I thought it was good. It seemed a little bit ahead of its time. Meta films weren't really a thing yet. And I think this was probably the film to kind of kick that off. How often does a filmmaker make a movie about a filmmaker? There are specific reasons you do that. Well, a classic one that you could even talk about is Citizen Kane with Orson Welles and how he grew up and what he did and how he was able to get to where he was. And as we said before, there's plenty of films that the great directors always put themselves in their own films to a certain degree right. or make films about themselves and look at themselves from a microscopic level while at the same time put out the bigger ideas that impact all of us at the same time to be honest like 
I, I don't know. I wasn't crazy over it because I think it, it really, again, partly reminded me of myself creating a podcast, doing stuff on the internet, putting myself out there where it was kind of painful in a way and like almost overlong. And I don't think I really identified myself with Guido more than anybody else, but to a certain degree though, because I feel like a lot of his actions are really immoral. And a lot of the things that he's doing isn't the way he treats people around him. I don't think he's really empathetic. Part of it is he is empathetic because he's trying to figure out who he is and why he does the things that he does. The process of bearing your inner emotions and experiences to the world through creating something. And it's so exhausting of a process that I was like, by the end of the movie, I'm like, oh my God, thank God this is over. Cause I'm just so exhausted from like knowing both the weight of creating something and seeing somebody else, especially at the beginning of the movie, he is in this surrealist nightmare situation where he's stuck in traffic and he floats away and then somebody brings him back down to earth. And then you see when the reality hits, he's exhausted. He's in this spa type of town trying to figure out this film. And once he does figure out the film, does he really figure it out? Exactly. It really interesting your reaction to the film because it sounds like this would have been great if it didn't call you out. <laughs> honestly, honestly, it's almost like the perfect film for millennials. It's like if you react that way, that's probably what it was supposed to do. Because you know, think about it. Just I think everything about that is like, yeah, this is almost like a millennial before we ever existed. Because I think about how many Instagram moments are in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Dude, you're blowing my mind with this. <laughs> there are certain sequences like I could see that on Instagram because it's real life, but it isn't. Because with how surreal it is, I honestly kind of question what was reality and what wasn't. Some of it wasn't matching up. Like, this doesn't make sense that this is actually because there were moments that weren't real and then moments that were real. But I'm like, is that real or is it not? Because he kind of lives this fever dream. He's like a unreliable narrator in a way, because of the way that I said before, he basically is this really immoral person with all the different affairs that he's had with women, the way that he treats those around him that really want to have his success, the way he treats his wife. She's the person that's like constantly closed to the world because she knows how much of the world means to her husband and how he lustily goes after every single moment. And yet it still does not satisfy him. And in that way, you know, you talk about this idea of, you know, these Instagram moments and how people are clearly influenced about the world and the things that we see around each other. But in the inside, I don't want to say everybody's struggling, but everybody's struggling with this idea of self-identification. Who am I? Oh, this person has this thing. I want to do it like that. Oh, this person has this. They're with this person. How can I get that person to be with me? Or how could I get somebody like them as well? And I think that's really interesting to see how, again, you're exactly right on the head, the proto-millennial and how he is looking at our generation without looking at our generation. And if there was a whole kind of TikTok trend is like, oh, how do you know that you're a millennial without knowing you're a millennial before millennials even exist? So I think that's like something that would be really interesting to look at. And that's definitely illuminated this film a little bit more for me. Yeah, there was also one other thing that I kind of noticed that is very specific to the millennial experience, constantly being questioned about your decisions. Because he was getting constant questions about his script and what everything was supposed to mean. And he he did it in millennial fashion. He kind of brushed it off, hoping they would go away. On top of that, too, when you're constantly asked about, oh, like, what are you doing? What does this mean? Why are we going into this? Why does your generation like this or appreciate this? Why do we have to explain the things that we enjoy to other people that are outside of our generation? And it's something that, like, a lot of people just don't understand. And to be honest, 
a lot of the mainstream type of popular culture or memes and stuff, they're not appealing to me. I don't find them funny or interesting, but at the same time, there are a lot of things, you know, that we all collectively find fascinating. I think one of the main things is Shrek and how like popular that is and how surrealist that is to a certain degree and how it has made such a massive impact even long after almost 20 plus years after it initially came out to look at a film like this compared to Shrek and how it just says a lot of stuff about our generation, how we interact with media and art. Yeah, there was an article I saw once and I read a bit of it. It was talking about millennial humor because just the memes just got more surreal as time went on. And they're like, yeah, the, their humor is it's it's surreal, dark and doesn't mean anything. And there is one meme in particular that I absolutely love and I don't know why. And it's this meme where it shows an ocean view and there's a door in the ocean. There are two, I think, seals sitting next to it. No, they're like dogs or something, but on top, it's in wavy letters. It says, Will Smith is trying to eat soybeans in my bed. And for some reason, this this is just one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's just so bizarre. I don't know why I like it. It's just like, that resonates with me. You just throw random humor together and it works. It's interesting like how we're able to have this nonchalant idea while at the same time being super uber obsessed with little fine details within every movie, like whether it be popcorn movies or films like from my personal perspective, films like Terrence Malick, as you mentioned before, A Hidden Life, the little details within that, within the writing, the subtext. It's interesting to see how we can go from something that is so broad and vast and both complex and not complex at the same time, how we're able to do that. And I think with the way that Fellini shoots this, is And a lot of the times with Fellini, he has this theme of circus. Life's just a big circus. We're on a carousel. Let us ride it out and to see what happens. And I think by the end of the film, that is kind of really like, oh, okay, I rode this kind of wave to see what was going to happen. And, you know, it didn't go the way I wanted to. And a lot of times within our generation, we do feel that kind of thing is like, we're constantly on this circle. We're, we're in a circle. We're in this carousel round and round and round we go. While we're on that, the thing that powers that circle is the older generations. And we're not really able to get off that carousel because of the actions that the older generations have done. And we can't get off that circus or we can't exit that big tent by the end of the film because of those previous generations. And I think with the character of Guido, he is pushed a lot by older generations and by his act at to say like, hey, we got to create this thing, what you're known for. And I think the idea of having people preconceiving who you are, especially at the beginning of the film, like, oh, we're going to do like, you're going to do it this way. You're going to do it that way. Are you going to stick to your regular plan? Are you going to go do something that's all completely different from what you've done in, in the past? And I think that kind of experience of being stuck in a circle and wanting to both go have one foot in the past and one foot in the present, one arm in the future, is something that's very reminiscent of millennial experiences and how we are constantly being, A, judged by the previous generation and then being pushed into this thing that's just constantly revolving because of the actions of the past and how we can't really stop that. Right. I think another thing that I kind of noticed with Guido, and it's this idea of there's a lot of hype around him, obviously. He kind of reminds me of those kids who were told they were smart when they were young, and then they just sort of coasted because they're like, I'm smart. I'm more capable than most. And then once they get to the point where they actually have to prove it, it just falls apart. Because 
clearly this movie doesn't make sense when he's trying to get this made. And people are pointing that out. And he's like, no, it makes sense. This just means this. This means this. And then it goes to flashbacks with certain things that relate. But by the end of it, it's like, what are you actually making? Also, what was that set piece that was being built for this movie? Yeah, that, that I mean, see, it was. It was never explained. It was. It was massive, though. It's supposed to be a rocket ship. Oh, it is supposed to be a rocket ship. Yeah, it's supposed to be a rocket ship. Like, uh, looks like a scaffolding. Like that's that's the whole thing. That's what it was. This idea of he knows what it is, but no one else knows what it is. He's going through his past, but no one knows what's going on in your head. You, no one knows what's going on in your head until you put it out there on the page. You put it out there on the stage. You put it out there on a set, and you film it. With him and with how he reacts to other characters, you're right. Like he is this kid that was like, oh yeah, you're great. You're great. And then on the other side of that, he is those kids, their negative emotions saying like, am I really who they say I am? Am I really this great director? Am I really this great person because of the art that I put out there? Why do they say it? There's all this pressure that it constantly is put on him and when he finds out in the end, he's just like, okay, I just want to be me. I want to be me and escape from the situation that I created myself. With that, he does have that humanity to a certain degree where he's like, I just want to get away from this whole thing. I don't know why I did this in the first place. Why did this happen? It didn't really come up with anything. How can you really see what a man is? And going back to Citizen Kane, the idea of how can we really know a man even though he's putting himself out there and he's putting ideas out there on a film, how can we really know one man and the complexities of that man without going back into his life and going back into the women that, more specifically in this film, going back to the women that he has been with in the past and how he has this big idea of them all interacting together and how crazy that would be and how they would all turn on him because of who he is and who he's become and how his relationships have led to who he has become his experiences going into the past and being in this world of something that no longer exists and trying to adapt that into his current creative moments. How does he overcome both himself and the people outside of him? I'm sure as a creator yourself, do you empathize with those feelings that Guido's had throughout the whole film? How do you also overcome that mental block when you are creating something? I'm at a point where I don't really get blocks and I'm still trying to figure out if I'm just jaded or not <laughs> because it's really not at this point it's really not hard for me to create but it's like I also do so many different things at this point because it's like yeah I got the podcast I contribute to Films Fatale I do music which was the first thing I did I dabble in video a bit and I'm trying to expand that I've actually got like several screenplay ideas I just have to actually start outlining but I definitely see where he's coming from because it comes up in a lot of creators lifetimes where they kind of question am I good enough is this really what I should be doing but now I just kind of look at it like oh everyone is better than me it doesn't matter I'm just going to create that's what I do not so as far as he goes because he kind of he has these feelings but he's very apathetic about it which is another interesting point because it's like does he even really care he kind of faked it till he made it Maybe that's why, and you know, that was another reason why I didn't really identify with him and like I didn't really want to be as empathetic because I feel like with all the things that was put around him, there were like, you know, great, quote unquote, I don't want to say great actors around him, but they were are known as great within their world, within this world. And he kind of just brushes them off. And majority of the film and his issues in his life are all his fault. 
he just does these things where it's just like, all right, well, uh, I don't care about the consequences, so I'm just going to do it. And then the consequences bite him in the butt. And he's just like, oh, man, I feel bad for myself. Do you really believe in this hype? Should I believe in my own hype? And why should I believe in my own hype? Or who should I really believe? So I think with him and the rest of the characters and how always vying for his attention and he's just not giving that, he needs those people in order to create his great art, and he's brushing them off. He operates kind of like a con artist. He just has this way about him where it's like he always knows exactly what to say. He is a narcissist, a self-obsessed person, and the way that you just said he's a con artist, does that remind a lot of people in our generation of a lot of public figures right now and how con artists are almost in the limelight constantly because of the ways that they're able to talk and convince people and i think he is a great example of what we need to learn from don't trust people like guido because they say one thing to you and then mean another thing to you and then their inner feelings are not the same feelings that you put into them and that is something that i think a lot of people struggle with people want to connect through the things that they want and will throw people down by the wayside in order to get those things. This film is almost too real for millennials to watch. <laughs> Guido could be your best friend for all you know. It is really so applicable to a lot of facets in our lives. And now that you've convinced me more that it is almost like one of the greatest films ever made because of how real it is. It might have just attacked me too much where I was like, uh, -huh, this is boring. Or, oh, uh, this is like not something that I'm like crazy into. And this is the first time me as the host saying, oh, I'm not crazy into this classic film, but I'm really glad that you are. <laughs> Why do you think Eight and a Half is considered to be one of the greatest films ever made? And do you think it could still be considered as much today? It's considered one of the greats because of how innovative it is from a storytelling standpoint, considering it's not a common thing that was happening in the early 60s, this kind of surreal meta humor especially when you're making fun of yourself how much praise came from people who are like i can actually identify with that yeah we're all kind of like this as artists but i think it still can be in the conversation because you could easily do that film again today like you can honestly do that film in any generation honestly i wish i could go back in time and convince Werner herzog to do a version of eight and a half but about himself because there's so many stories of how neurotic he is on film sets. Like, what would he do if he actually made a movie about how he actually is? I can see a lot of people thinking it to be this greatest film ever made uh, because of how relatable it is, not only for our generation, for most generations, and how it talks about self-doubt. It talks about, you know, this meta idea of let me make fun of myself in order to other people realize, hey, you might be doing the same things as I am. Let's look at ourselves and see how we can change for the better instead of hurting those people that are around us that are really, really trying to vie for our attention and enjoy ourselves together in order to create a better future. Why do you think specifically millennials and the younger generations should watch Eight and a Half? I think it's a good reminder to check yourself because I think millennials are among the first generation to do that and actually make a point to strive for personal development like a boomer couldn't identify with this movie because they're set in their ways they they would honestly identify more with guido because he's self-aware and he doesn't well, he almost doesn't want to change but we could look at this and say yeah if i feel like this i need to change that because that's not actually good 
I'd honestly like to see a modern remake. Like, I'd like to see a millennial make this because I think we could do a shot for shot remake of this and have it work. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with James about Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. I had a great time talking with James and hope to have him on the show again sometime soon. And please don't forget to check out his show, The K-Cut. If you want to check out more of my work and want to watch the film we discussed, you can find me at dlumoviereview.com, classicmoviehub.com, best classics ever, and my YouTube channel. Thank you.